If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. At the turn of the 19th century, a small German university town became the beating heart of an intellectual revolution. From philosophers and poets to scientists and playwrights, Jena attracted some of Europe's brightest minds, and their scandalous lives were just as controversial as their groundbreaking ideas. This cohort of unconventional thinkers is the subject of a new book, Magnificent Rebels, by Andrea Wolfe, and I spoke to her to find out more. Magnificent Rebels, it's a group biography, really, of a collection of thinkers, writers, artists, scientists, based in the German university town of Jena at the turn of the 19th century. So could you introduce us to the Jena set and explain a little bit about why their ideas were so revolutionary at the time? Maybe I'll start actually with how I came across them. So I'm German originally, but I've lived in England for 30 years. And in my previous book, uh, which was about Alexander von Humboldt, I went to Jena, which is a small town in Germany, about 150 miles south of Berlin, because he had spent many, many months there in the 1790s. And as I was walking through the streets of Jena, I saw all these name plaques on the houses of all these super famous people I had, you know, learned about at school. And I just couldn't believe that they had been all in this place together. So there was, for example, the famous German playwright Friedrich Schiller, who had become celebrated after um, writing his famous play, uh, The Robbers, for which he was imprisoned. There was the celebrated German poet Goethe, who had, although he lived in Weimar, which was only 10 miles away, had spent many, many months each year in Jena. There was the stubborn philosopher Johann Gottlieb Fichte, who put the self at the nexus of his philosophy. There was the young philosopher Friedrich Schelling, who 
redefined our relationship with nature. There was Hegel, who would become later on one of the most important philosophers in the Western world. There were the literary critics and brothers, the Schlegel brothers. There were the Humboldt brothers. And there there was the poet Novalis, who was a poet um, very famous in Germany, who's maybe known to the English-speaking audience um, through Penelope Fitzgerald's book, um, The The Blue Flower. And there were a a couple of really interesting women, and maybe we can talk about them a little bit more in detail later. So although all these names might not be famous for an English-speaking audience, I promise you they're like the superstars in Germany. So each of them is worth you know, writing a book about. But what is even more extraordinary is that they came together at exactly the same time in this kind of tiny little university town of four and a half thousand people. So I wanted to find out um, why they had come together there. And I found this story of radical ideas, ideas about the creative power of the self, about the unity between humankind and nature, and about the true meaning of freedom. But I also found a story that was just full of scandals and love affairs and open marriages and children born out of wedlock. It was a very rich 10 years, basically. And and what they did is, and why, why I think they are so important, is they put the self at the center stage of their thinking. So at a time when most of Europe was kind of held in the iron fist of absolutism. They came together and their individual experience became the guiding light of their lives. And so the French revolutionaries have, you know, they changed the political landscape of Europe, but the Jena set really incited a revolution of the mind, which we still feel today. At the center of this book is the tension between the thrilling possibilities of the free will and the pitfalls of selfishness, which is which is a balancing act which we still continue today. And I'm sure that we might interrogate um, that balancing act a bit later in the conversation. So as you say, this is a really eminent list of people who were in Jena at this time. So what was going on in Jena? Why did so many creative, um, progressive thinkers end up there at this time? So... I think we actually have to start why Germany. So at the end of the 18th century, Germany was not a unified nation. It was a patchwork of about 1,500 states, ranging from tiny principalities to big, powerful states such as Prussia and Austria. And Jena was in the small duchy of Saxe-Weimar, which was pretty much in the center of this. And this jigsaw of states was called the Holy Roman Empire. Now, one unintended advantage of this fragmentation was that censorship was not easily enforced in these small little states because every state had their own set of rules. In Germany, everything was inward looking and splintered. Really, the German imagination had to travel along words and books. And almost every German town at that time had reading societies, lending libraries. There were 50 universities in the German states compared to, say, two in England. Germans were like fanatical readers, so literacy rates were soaring. So Prussia and Saxony were actually leading the world at the end of the 18th century. So this was a place where ideas and arguments actually traveled very, very easily. But then Wajena, which is, you know, it's a, it's a small town. At that time, it was 4,500 people. It took less than 10 minutes to cross. But it was a place that had attracted some of the most liberally minded thinkers and poets in the, in the German states. And one of the reasons was that it was 
it was ruled by a very enlightened um, duke who, you know, encouraged a certain degree of openness and frankness. But the real reason was the university or to be specific, the strange governance of the university. So the university had once belonged to Saxony, but through complicated inheritance laws, it was then ruled by four different Saxon dukes with no one really in charge. So that meant that professors there could basically teach whatever they wanted. And people like Friedrich Schiller, for example, who had been imprisoned for the robbers, in his home state of uh, the Duchy of Württemberg, he had come to Jena, and as had other many others. So it became this quite transient place. Also, people came and left, and you know they left behind, uh, you know, trails of broken hearts and children. And um, I mean, there was a staggering quarter of all children born at that time were born out of wedlock. I mean, twenty five percent really extraordinary. So it it was a place unlike any other. Uh, in Germany and in Europe, I would say. And I think that some of the most intriguing details of your book are the everyday details. So we have these incredible great thinkers who have gone down in history for their ideas, but some of the the day-to-day existence of them is fascinating. What was day-to-day life like in Jena? Basically, they were all friends. They all kind of hung out together. They, you know, Wherever they went, they would kind of bump into each other. One of the women in the Jena said... Um, who I will introduce with all her names, um, <laughs> is Caroline Michaelis Böhmer Schlegel Schelling. So she carried the name of her father, but also her three husbands. She's basically this extraordinary woman who just refuses to be restricted by the rules that society intended for women at that time. And she lived with her husband, August Wilhelm Schlegel, and her brother, Friedrich Schlegel, and Friedrich Schlegel's lover, Dorothea Veit, and which is almost like the first commune in Germany. And so they lived together, and she had a salon uh, where they all met and worked. So in, so it was it was this big salon with like sofas and armchairs and a table that set up to 20 people and the food was terrible and because they didn't have money so people complained but she served gherkins potatoes herrings and some kind of waterless waterless soup but they also said that the menu was not created by the ingredients of the meals but by the by the intellectual menu that Carolina had prepared so she's really the if you imagine them as a orchestra she was the conductor who brought the score alive and so they worked together often in the mornings they each worked on their own projects um, composing poetry writing essays and then they would meet for lunch up to 20 people on their on their big table and they would talk, they would talk and discuss and shout and argue and laugh. And it was always noisy because they they basically agreed to that they didn't have to agree because there was nothing more boring than um than agreeing on something. And they called this working together, this communal work, they called it sim philosophizing. So they added the prefix sim, S-Y-M, in front of a lot of words, such so as physics, philosophy, poetry, but also to, uh, in front of words such as to idle and it effectively meant together. So they really regarded themselves as this kind of great big symphony. Um, and then they and then they have all these affairs, which I think, you know, I mean, it's so much fun to, to read about. Because on the one hand, you have these big, very important ideas that really shape the way we think about us and the world and nature. And then at the same time, you have these very, very funny, light stories in between, which we all know about because they left 
thousands of letters. And because they're all poets and writers, these letters are wonderful. And you have Friedrich Schlegel, for example, who lives together with this divorced writer, Dorothea Weid. And then he has lovers on the side. She has lovers on the side. He writes a autobiographical erotic novel, Lucinda, in which he invites his readers to, you know, basically watch him and Dorothea make love. I mean, absolutely scandalous. And then you have like Novalis's diary, for example, where he meticulously lists, you know, his sexual urges and his masturbation. And then you have Carolina, for example, who gets pregnant after a one-night stand with an 18-year-old French soldier. She then marries August Wilhelm Schlegel, but her, his brother Friedrich Schlegel is also in love with her. But she then starts having an affair with Friedrich Schelling, and August Wilhelm doesn't mind because he has his own affairs, and it just goes on and on. So that friends at some stage say, say like, the whole Schlegel household is such a pigsty um, because no one was no, you know no one knew anymore who was sleeping with whom. So there, so there's this very light-hearted bit about this story. But it's interesting, isn't it, how those two elements of the story connect? This kind of uh, progressiveness in terms of sex and marriage and relationships on the one hand, and also the philosophy and the ideas at the heart of this movement on the other. How much were this group of thinkers and writers, how much did they take the kind of theoretical ideas that they believed in and apply them to actual life? Very much so. So the, the important of their new philosophy is that the self becomes really the center of everything. And the, the philosopher who introduces this idea is Johann Gottlieb Fichte, who comes to Jena in 1794 and uh, gives his first lecture there. And, uh, and it was quite a spectacle. So you have to imagine him in his, you know, in the lecture hall, uh, dressed in riding boots and spurs and kind of his whip in hand. He is famed for his volatile temperament. He's kind of sturdily built, kind of quite muscular, has a very strong presence in the room. He he stomps rather than walks and he he eats his um he eats his snuff tobacco rather than inhaling it. He's a big character. And his students call him the Bonaparte of philosophy because he revolutionizes everything. And he's so popular that students are standing outside on ladders trying to look into the window because the, the, the auditorium is so packed. So what Fichte does is he imbues the self with free will and self-determination. And he basically says that the only certainty in the world is that the world is experienced through the self. So this is at a time when philosophers for centuries have talked about that the universe is ruled by God and by God-given truth. So mathematics and rational observation might have paved our way to knowledge so we can understand these natural laws, but we can never shape them. So the so humans remain these kind of cocks in this kind of divine machine. So when Fichte is saying the, the source of all reality is the self, it's an explosive revolutionary idea. I mean, it's really, we can't actually underestimate it because we are so used today to understand the world through the prism of ourself, but that was not what happened before. Fichte makes the self the supreme ruler of the world, and he says the self posits its own being, which means the self effectively brings its own existence into existence. And not only that, through that very powerful initial act, it also brings the external world into existence, at least 
in our mind. So it doesn't mean that the self creates the world, but it creates our knowledge of the world. And with that, he gives all the power to the self and, and, and effectively says that the self is the agent of everything. So the self is free. And this is the beginning of the modern, of the modern self. And your question was, is that kind of reflected in their, in their own lives? And it is because this individual experience becomes really, you know, their guiding light. They break with all the social conventions. There's no outside rule that they accept anymore. It's almost like they use their own lives as a platform or as a laboratory for all these kind of radical ideas. And they test them out in their own lives. And this is also why it also goes horribly, horribly wrong in the end, because they become too self-absorbed and their egos are too inflated in, in the end. But it, it, they live this philosophy and it, it's this philosophy of the self or the ich philosophy is so thrilling and so exciting at that time um that it, i mean it's very hard to imagine because we because they were born into a world that was so different to ours where you have monarchs that rule every detail of their subject's lives they can give permission to marriage they can decide what profession you are going to have they can sell their subjects as mercenaries to other nations so they were born into a world of despotism, control, and inequality. So this I, this philosophy, which gives all the power to the self, is just the most exciting thing ever. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They really changed our world irrevocably. Um, we would be very, very different without this strong emphasis on the self. So, so they gave us this self-determined self the or free will and um and i think we are still empowered by their quite daring leap let's say into into the self because the self has stayed there for the better of the worst this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. What you said there about them sometimes taking this emphasis on the self to catastrophic ends is really interesting. I wonder if you could give us some examples. One that I'm particularly thinking of is the poet Novalis and his attempt to essentially will himself to die 
Can you explain a bit about the story behind that? Yeah, it sounds quite bonkers, doesn't it? If you if you think about it. So, so Novalis is a very interesting character. He was he was born to an ancient Saxon aristocratic family, um, one of eleven children. Not a lot of money, so he has to work. Uh, he works in the in the salt mines, and he's a poet. So he's he's actually the only one in this whole group who has a proper job. He's tall, he's lean, he has long hair. He's really he becomes the epitome of the young romantic um, because he dies when he's very young, so kind of frozen in time and youth. He he is the kind of young first romantic. All his friends agree that there's something magical about him. So they describe the fire in his eyes. And and he, I mean, men and women both kind of fall for him. And he falls for Sophie von Kuhn, who's 12 years old. So that makes for uncomfortable reading these days. Although they are engaged, but, you know, when she's 13, he's 22 it's it's a platonic love. So she dies when she's 15 after some terrible surgeries. And he decides, I mean, he's, you know, devastated. And he decides that he wants to be reunited with her in death. And he says, you know, I'm going to kill myself. But, you know, he's not going to put a gun to his head or put, a, you know, a rope around his neck. He says, no, I'm going to do this with willpower. And he comes to this idea through... Fichte's philosophy. So he studied Fichte's philosophy a year after Fichte arrives in Jena, very intensively. I mean, there are about 500 manuscript pages by Novalis about this, about him studying um, this philosophy. And he, but he gives it his own twist by saying, so if the self is able to essentially create the external world in our mind, then, you know, the self should be able to do anything. So, for example, it should be able to grow an amputated arm, or it should also be able to um, kill myself. Uh, Needless to say, that didn't quite work out. But what I will say is that he turns this time into the most exquisite poetry. And, And one is a cycle of six poems, which is called Hymns to the Night, and in which he plays with with darkness and death in a very, very new way. So until then, darkness was always seen as something quite um, menacing and awful. And he turns it around. He says, actually, that's the way how we transcend into another into another being. And he calls it his magical idealism. Um, and then he, he dies very young um, when he's 28. But he, as I say, he really becomes the epitome of the young romantic. And he's, I mean, he's super famous in Germany. Mm. I think Novalis is quite a good example of the fluidity of of boundaries between disciplines in this time, in this set. So he took philosophical ideas and he translated them into poetry, but other thinkers took those philosophical ideas and they translated them into science or they translated them into literature or art. Can you tell us a bit about some of the different areas, the different disciplines that these ideas took hold in? So let me start with Novalis, actually, because he's a poet and a mining inspector. And what he does is he he believes, and all, all of them actually believe, that they, you should transcend discipline. And it's against the background of the Enlightenment. So, so this is a world which becomes more and more rational, where um, scientists look through microscopes to understand the minutiae of life. They lift up telescopes to understand our place in the universe. They classify plants and animals to impose order upon nature. 
physicians inoculate against smallpox. Um, they invent lightning rods. So it, it becomes this very productive, um, rational world. And, and that's something they, they all turn against. Um, and they call it this kind of big mill wheel, which is grinding itself to dust, this kind of mechanical world. So what Novalis, for example, wants to do, he says, like, I want to poeticize the sciences. And then you have Friedrich Schlegel, who is his best friend, who says, yes, absolutely. He, I want to turn mathematics and physics into music. I want to make Euclid singable. That becomes for them what we today um, call romanticism, although we understand something very different um, about romanticism than they did. But this is what they do. Is they try to transcend the boundaries of different disciplines. They want to create something that is complex, unwieldy, um, forever becoming, they said, inherently unfinished. So romantic poetry for them can be anything. It can be a poem, of course, but it can be an essay. It can be a play. It can be a novel. It can be a piece of music, a, you know, a, a piece of art or even a scientific experiment. They believe that just like two elements can become a new chemical compound, they say romantic poetry can create something distinctively and new. And, and the whole idea is that you transcend those boundaries just as they transcended the boundaries of society, just as they kind of break the straitjacket of social conventions, so they break with the rules of their literary establishment. And, for example, break with, you know, they turn against the rigid metric rules um, of 18th century poetry. As I think you've made really clear, this idea of breaking free from convention and boundary and authority was so key to these thinkers, but that also was quite dangerous at the time. Could you give some examples of where the revolutionary ideas of the Jena set got them into trouble? Yeah, so so although Jena was a place that was less um, restricted than other than other places in Germany. It didn't mean you could do anything you wanted. So uh, Fichte, for example, uh, writes a piece in, um, in 1799 about God. And he essentially, in this kind of short article, he explains that God is not the Christian God as we understand it, but is a moral God. So God is inside us, and it's it's the entity that lets us make morally good decisions. So that caused a huge scandal. He effectively lost his job because of that, because the Duke, um, the Duke of um, Saxe-Weimar, who is the ruler in, in, in Jena, he, he was always a little bit annoyed about Fichte because Fichte was because Fichte was an openly, you know, open supporter of the French Revolution. And he was telling his students things like, in 30 years there won't be any kings and princes anymore. So, you know, that's not something that the Duke really wanted to encourage at his university. And then because Fichte is such a well, he, he he's a character that just is easily offended and then just explodes. So instead of quietly, as many others would have done, quietly accepting this and then just kind of working along doing his stuff. He, he then turns this into a big public matter and publishes a pamphlet about him being attacked. And in the end, they all get so annoyed with him that he loses his job. So, so that, is, that is one example that you, they can't do whatever they want to do. But in, in fairness, they could, they could write quite a lot and say quite a lot in Jena if you compare it to, to, other, to other places. 
You mentioned earlier that there's always this difficult balancing act between um, the self on the one hand being about freedom and self-expression and fulfilling your desires, and on the other hand, egotism and um, and selfishness. Were people concerned about that at the time? Yes, there were. So you had people accusing Fichte of that that his ideas were like a narcissistic celebration of the self, very much so. So they had a lot of enemies who just thought this is an absolutely ridiculous thing to do, that you were kind of spiraling into this kind of vortex of self-obsession. So so Fichte was accused of that, which was in a way really unfair, because if you look at Fichte's philosophy, he never intended this to be a celebration of the self per se, what it, quite the opposite. He always said that this free self or this freedom is deeply intertwined with our moral obligation. So the freedom gives us the choice and how to act and behave. It elevates us over our base instincts of hunger, fear, anger, and it always comes with its twin moral duty. So their intention when they liberated the self was never self self absorption or egotistical kind of behavior it you know it veers into it and it's that's this kind of tiptoeing we still do it's very very difficult to to find this kind of fine balance in between so but yes they were they were accused of that right from the beginning you mentioned earlier the importance of women in this circle are there any other women that really played an important role here Yes, so there, so there's Carolina. I think is really the most important one because she becomes the heart and soul of the Yena set, and she's also, I mean, she's not just a muse. You know that we very often describe women. Oh, she was the muse of someone, but she was much, much more. So she, for example, she uh, is the editor of their literary magazine. She writes reviews under her husband's name. Uh, She translates with her husband, August Wilhelm Schlegel, um, 16 Shakespeare plays, which to this day are the the standard edition in Germany. So she is incredibly important. Then there's Dorothea Veit, who is Friedrich Schlegel's lover and later wife, but for many, many years she's the lover. She is the daughter of uh, one of Germany's most famous Philosophers of the Enlightenment, Moses Mendelssohn. Uh, she's married, then meets Friedrich in Berlin, um, falls in love, starts an affair, which is very risky, um, but then takes the extraordinary step to get a divorce so that she can be with him, it, taking the risk to losing her children. Um, and it's a huge, huge scandal. So she's, and she's also, she's a translator, she's a writer, so she writes a novel, she works um, very closely with her lover Friedrich Schlegel, so she's very important. And then there's also Wilhelm von Humboldt's wife, another Caroline. Um, sadly, most men are called Friedrich and the women are called Caroline. This is very confusing. So Wilhelm, Wilhelm von Humboldt's wife, she's a, she's a quite a character too. So she's also... Um, very clever, very smart. And she she has a lover. And her lover lives with a couple in Jena in the same house and openly joins in all the kind of social activities. So there's there, these women just absolutely refuse to accept the roles that they that they were meant to live in this in this society. All of them are quite extraordinary. 
I wonder if we could talk about the end of this period and how it all kind of came crashing down. What do you see as the beginning of the end, really? Well, the beginning of the end, hmm, I think it is probably Fichte leaving. So Fichte leaves Jena in 1799, so five years after he arrives. He's the first to leave. Um, And then you have a time when, because they are all living together, and I mean, they're so, so closely intertwined, and because they are fighting against the literary establishment, they they live a quite an isolated life in a way. So, and then it becomes too much because they're all together and they begin to turn against each other um, in the winter of 1800. It's a very, very cold winter. They're all kind of like huddled up in front of their fireplaces and uh, quite a few of them are ill. So they're just basically stuck together in one house and they become, as Dorothea said, a republic of despots. And they begin to turn against each other. And it's just so tragic to see. Um, There's a moment when probably what also didn't help is when Caroline begins her relationship with Friedrich Schelling, who's 12 years younger than her. Um, for, For, you know, her husband doesn't mind so much, but all the others do mind suddenly. And I think it's because they worry that that their kind of well of friendship is somehow tainted by this um, because the Caroline and August Wilhelm house is the center of where they meet. So I think there's a worry that if she has an affair with someone else, that their marriage will break, which it does eventually. So then you have Friedrich Schlegel, who used to be once in love with Caroline, turning against her. And then Dorothea, who is together with Friedrich, finally she can attack Caroline because she's always a bit jealous of her. And it just goes so nasty and terrible. Um, and maybe it is unsurprising that you, you know, if you have a bunch of rebellious men and women who declare their self as the supreme ruler of the world, that you end up with inflated egos. Um, but then you have extraordinary moments where August Wilhelm and Caroline, they, they divorce, but they don't really fall out with each other. You know, they, they remain, um, they remain friends. So there's also, there's also deep love in between of them, in between them. So this golden age of Jena may have come to an end, but of course the ideas that were put forward there remained and continued. Where can we see their influence um, percolating down through the centuries? There are many achievements. They're the ones who launch romanticism as an international movement. Their ideas about the strong self, the unity between um, humankind and nature becomes incredibly important for people like um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, um, but also the American transcendentalists. So Coleridge, for example, in 1798, he decides, I need to go to Germany. I need to learn German. I need to meet the Germans. And I want to meet my heroes in Jena. And annoyingly, he runs out of money. So damn him. So he never makes it to Jena to meet them. But he learns German. And the time in Germany for for Coleridge was a huge turning point. So he arrived as a poet and he returns with a mind of a philosopher. And then you have, for example, the American transcendentalists. Again, they are very much um, inspired and influenced by Schelling's philosophy of nature. So you have Ralph Waldo Emerson, for example, who, when he writes his essay, Nature, in 1836, which becomes the Transcendentalist Manifesto, he takes a lot of these ideas that we are nature, we are the same as 
us around us from shelling. You have Henry David Thoreau who says, am I not partly leaves and vegetable mold myself? So again, these are ideas, but also he gets these ideas also from Alexander von Humboldt. You have Walt Whitman who says that his poetry is a, is a poetic distillation of the German idealist. So although the reign in Jena, this golden age, was very short, you have this kind of ripple-out effect from there across the world, and it really shapes romantics um, across the world. So that's that's one very, very important thing. But I think, for me, even more important is that they really changed our world irrevocably. Um, we would be very, very different without this strong emphasis on the self. So, so they gave us this self-determined self the, or free will. And, um, and I think we are still empowered by their quite daring leap let's say, into, into the self. Because the self has stayed there for the better of the worse, and we are still doing this kind of same balancing act as, they, um, as they've done. And, and I think underpinning what they've done are two questions, two crucial questions, like who am I as an individual and who am I as a member of a society? And so that means how can I live a meaningful life in which I pursue my dreams, but I'm still. How can I still be a good person? How can I reconcile my personal liberty with the with the demands of a society? And if you take the pandemic for example, it's a great example how that works out. So millions of us gave up our basic rights and liberties for the greater good, and many didn't because they thought their personal liberty was more important. So, so this balancing act, you know happens, continues to happen for long belief that we can, you know, we are free to think, we can shape our opinions, we can control our lives. But it turns out that this very core of our society is very much undermined at the moment. So, you you know, be that Russia's cyber interference with democratic election, fake news, or more recently, the Supreme Court's overruling of Roe versus Wade. So we are, so we live at a time where where our freedoms are hollowed out by liars, despots, reactionary politicians. So I think to look back at that very moment where this free self was actually, you know, launched, I think is very, very important. For me, that is more important than all the other aspects of their achievements. That was Andrea Wolfe. Her book, Magnificent Rebels, The First Romantics and the Invention of the Self, is out now, published by John Murray. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.